Welcome to The Telegram. I'm Tim Stanley. As of Saturday, gay couples will be allowed to get married. So what? Who cares? We ask why this dramatic social change has happened with so little protest, and what it means for society and for religion. Also, why watching The Killers is more fun than watching The Detectives. I'm joined in the studio by The Telegraph's Graham Archer, by Father Andrew Kane, by Peter Williams of Catholic Voices, and by the crime writer Alex Marwood. This Saturday, gay marriage comes to Britain. We were warned by one UKIP councillor that it might cause more flooding. But apart from some late spring drizzle, this remarkable social revolution has passed with very little excitement at all which contrasts strongly with France, where thousands of Conservatives poured into the streets of Paris to protest what they saw as the wreckage of the most important civil institution that we've got, marriage between one woman and one man to the exclusion of all others. Britain, it seems, just doesn't give a hoot about who weds who. So what does the legalisation of gay marriage say about our society and what will its consequences be for the future, particularly for people who are religious? I'd like to start by asking Graham Archer, one of our columnists who is in a civil partnership, what it tells him about the country he lives in. Well, of course it makes me happy, but I think to your point, Tim, about the lack of um, visible outrage, that speaks to the ancient um, good common sense of Britain. A very few of our compatriots became very excited before the reform was enacted but most of us knew and now everyone has seen that the sky is still there above us. The only impact I can see from this change is that for gay people and their families and loved ones, the amount of love and joy on the planet has been increased and that's to the detriment of nobody. Peter, Peter Williams, um, you're a Catholic. You've observed this as someone who's commented a great deal upon the change. Were you surprised, disappointed, um, or even pleased by how civil the whole thing's been? Um, I wasn't surprised. I was somewhat disappointed, but because I wasn't surprised, I wasn't that disappointed. Uh, right. I saw this coming very much. Um, and the reason why I think this wasn't a big deal so much in British society is not necessarily because um, people wanted this change. In fact, there were no marches in favour of it. The vast majority of people who, comment, who seemed to make any kind of public demonstration about this were un almost universally against it. I mean, we had 60,000 people People signed the uh, petition that said, yes, we want this. And then 600,000 odd said, we don't want it. What should that tell you? Um, but the reason why most people didn't, you know, really couldn't care less about this is because the vast majority of British people don't really care about social issues compared right. to the things that directly affect their lives, the bread and butter issues like health, education, taxes. Those are things that really ups, you know, upset people or exercise them and make them vote a particular way. The vast majority of people don't care about these sort of totemic issues. And that's why this was There's really... There's nothing a, totemic about my life. I and I, I would rather we could have the discussion at a more a level that avoids this idea well, that I, I gay say, people as individuals don't matter because there aren't very many of Well, that, that of course begs many questions, including the idea this was about the good of same-sex attracted people. I don't grant that at all because I don't think this really benefited anyone. There's no real practical benefit this gave but, to same-sex attracted people or anyone else, really, because we already had civil partnerships. Can you see inside my heart? What's your part, what has your heart got to do with this? You I'm just asked. said that this didn't bring any advantage to anyone. I'm asking you if you can see within my heart to know the answer to your question. I don't think it's relevant. How does, I mean, if you're saying that you needed uh, the public blessing of your union, I would ask, well, why did you feel you needed that? Because I don't really think that benefited you in any real 
positive Forgive way. Forgive me, um, that would be a question as this is, to This what, is Father Andrew Kane, by the way. Yes. Father. Why any couple needs a publicity of their relationship, whether gay or straight? Oh, I agree. I, I, I'm actually in favour of uh, abolishing marriage entirely as a legal institution because I don't really think that the state should be involved in this issue what, at all. Um, what, Have what you always really... thought that or did you adopt that position after the proposal for marriage reform? Well, funnily enough... A la UKIP. Funnily enough, um, the Catholic Church has actually been against the civil institution of marriage since the 19th century. Arcanum, uh, the well, Arcanum rather, the um, encyclical by Pope Leo XIII, actually was against the whole idea of having a civil institution of marriage. So in that case, I'm sort of adopted sort of knee-jerk libertarian position on that. However, I thought I think if there was going to be any purpose for the civil institution of marriage, it would be because it was trying to prescribe the relational ideal for the formation of the family. That clearly very much is the relationship between a man and a woman, so that there can be that complementarity of male and female in the bringing up of children. That's the purpose of marriage if there ever was since, one. Oh, now that we've reduced marriage argued, to... Since you've so already argued that this affects so few people, it really wasn't worth the legislative time. In what sense is your archetype of marriage threatened by the extension of the institution to include same-sex couples? Well, it is and it isn't. Which sense. heterosexual couple won't get married because my, myself well, and my partner will? I, Have you, I, can you I've name one? Asked, I've never argued that. Uh, what I would argue... You just said uh, the archetype I, was threatened I, by the I institution. I didn't mention the term archetype. You were the one well, who mentioned well, it. No, but but Peter, what you, I would argue... You did say, you did say, Peter, um, that um, you, you don't think the state should be involved in marriage mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. In and which case, why does it trouble you, or why would it trouble you, that the state chooses to redefine something that you think is a? And apologies, you did then go on to well, say there, that there are the two change reasons. will affect the what I called the archetype. I don't remember the exact word you used. Apologies, okay. but you did say it would threaten the model of complementarity inherent in the. No, in, well, what, the, what the I actually said was, if I may, if, what I actually said was, if there is any purpose to there being a civil institution, a legal institution of marriage, that is to prescribe the relational ideal. Now, if we then say we're going to redefine what that is, we're going to redefine the legal institution and it is a redefinition you know when you redefine when you change the direct object of a verb you change the nature of the verb itself and in this case to marry has now been changed that will have a social effect It'll do, it's basically divorced the legal institution from the natural institution of marriage and therefore made the social institution rather problematic okay. that's be, why i'm let's against be this. absolutely Father clear Andrew, please, marriage please. is not simply about the procreation and raising of children I didn't because say that. You, actually you did I didn't say it was only about that <laughs> marriage is, I, I want, sorry, I want to let Father Andrew... You're quite okay. right. Point. And marriage is, 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 is actually about two people making a consensual decision to live together and make a commitment to each other. Mm. And personally, I think the gender of those people makes no difference whatsoever to their choice to make that commitment. Fair and enough. your argument would then require us not to allow um, people who choose not have children to marry, or people who are too old to have children not to marry. Well, actually, it and wouldn't. I think that makes no sense. Actually, it wouldn't because even people who are heterosexual couple who choose not to have children could still change their mind later. And even if they didn't change their mind, if they wanted to. Let's say they couldn't, as with the old elderly couple. Let's say they tried to adopt. They could still provide that basic complementarity of male and female to whatever children they had. But in any case, the fundamental heterosexual nature of marriage as an historic institution is there precisely because we had this early pair bonding twelve thousand years ago thousands of years ago in our history. We had human pair bonding, which was, of course, by definition, between a man and a woman. That led to a family. That led to kinship. That led to the tribe, which led to the nation. In other words, marriage is a fundamental social institution that is quite. all about... Quite. Fundamentally about... Quite. Right. Funda- can, I, can I finish my point? Sorry, can I, can I finish my point? Okay. It's fundamentally, well, we it's fundamentally about... It's fundamentally about the nature of the family. Now, it doesn't mean it's all about that. There is a romantic element to it. But I would say that 
is fundamentally also I about find fam- it family. So, and so such need. poverty of that. imagination to assume that the only argument in favour of blessing same-sex union as marriage is, is for the romantic requirements of the two parties involved because it implies that those two individuals aren't part of families than other than themselves and that their bonding together doesn't bring those two families together. Apologies for sounding slightly upset. I detest the argument that I'm because I'm gay, I have no other interest in everything else in society and that rewarding my lifelong commitment to my partner is just a way of patting my, my fragile little ego on the back. It is entirely about the bonding between our two families and all the older generations and the ones coming after us. It's not just to satisfy our needs for the next 12 months or however I, 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 I completely agree. A couple of years ago, maybe four or five years ago, I blessed um, a lesbian relationship that just had their civil partnership. And the relationship, um, they lived on a council estate in Sheffield. Um, quite rough. Mm. And at that celebration were their neighbours, their families, their friends, their work colleagues, the whole community that surrounded those two young women as they made a lifelong and permanent commitment to each other. It was absolutely about family and community and commitment and longevity. And to reduce marriage simply to procreation and the raising of children is to do a disservice to marriage and to everybody who is married. And Actually, as Graham says, it, it isn't, I would say, an insult to the gay community in this country, which has made it very clear for many years that our relationships are of equal value to those of any straight couple and, of, and deserving of protection and honouring. Mm-hmm. So if you want that, we already had that with civil partnerships. Did you and support I, I, the introduction I, 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 of civil I say, partnerships? I would say actually that Did you... Did you support the introduction of civil partnerships? Actually, no, but for different reasons. If I, right. I, I, okay. I, I actually think... No, we should... Can I complete the point? Can I complete the point? I think actually what we should do. have, what we should what we should have had to the very begin with is allowed all the relational benefits that accrue to marriage and indeed civil partnerships to be available to anyone for whatever reason under any kind of organisation of their family. I'm actually in favour of simply... What are you trying to defend? Well, what I'm trying to defend find the fact that lesbian and gay people want to celebrate their relationships within the communities of which they are a part and build families and stable home units mm-hmm. which will benefit not just themselves but everybody around them provide care for the children that they adopt for the care mm-hmm. the children that they they give birth to the the families that they nurture the old people they care for what are you trying to protect i don't understand any of that i think they should be absolutely able to marriage. do all of those things what i'm saying is that legal marriage has only one purpose if there was going to be a institution of legal marriage at all, and that is to prescribe the relational ideal, in other words, the ideal form of relationship for the formation of the family. And two men or two women cannot bring that complementarity of male and female to a child. This now, I'm not reducing... Can I again... Assumption. Can I finish? No. I, I, I didn't no. interrupt you. No. Now, if I, I actually I, think I, you've I, had rather a lot well, of... Well, I, think, I, you, I, think and I, I have to clear repeat agenda and I also, I also do want to move says. the debate on. Father Andrew, you're in a very personal position because you, I believe you intend to marry I'm getting married in June to my partner. 15 years. And that is going to have consequences uh, for your position as a priest, is it not? Uh, we shall wait and see. I had a meeting with my bishop about a fortnight ago uh, at which he tried to persuade me that I should have a civil partnership and I declined the invitation and made it clear that I will get married. 
and he said we are in uncharted territory for the Church of England. Right. Now, that's an interesting way of describing it because we were told by the government that there were locks in place. Yes. Uh, that means that this would sort of be an issue that would affect civil society but not the church itself. But that's clearly not true, is it? It's The church is going to have to deal with members of the clergy, members of its parishioners mm-hmm. who wish to have gay marriages. So, and who, who are getting married. And I, I right. personally dislike the term gay marriage. I would need same-sex marriage. This is just about marriage. Okay. Okay. Um, in terms of the Church of England's position, the government, and I think as a way of just sort of sidelining the church in this, um, has provided what's called a quadruple lock, which means right. the Church of England is not required in law and indeed cannot in law um, solemnise marriages between gay and lesbian people within our own buildings. So I'm a state registrar and in my churches I can marry straight couples that come to me but I'm legally excluded from being able to do that for gay and lesbian people. Um, The debate within the church is the bishops are now saying that if a a faithful practicing Anglican couple decide to get married and then go to their priest and ask for some kind of official recognition of that. The bishops published a letter on Valentine's Day stating that they should be basically told off for departing from the church's traditional teaching and that they should then be given informal prayers at most. Right. And, and for the clergy, the bishops urged their clergy not to get married and said it was a matter of obedience to our bishops. Right. Now, and that is of dubious a, legality. For the future. Was, yeah. That must sound ridiculous after. Mm-hmm. I can't, can't begin to imagine the stress of the situation that you're in and your bravery for facing up to it. But if we have any hope of moving beyond this reductive shouting dog, dogma at one another and finding a way to return to respecting each other, then we need an institution to work out how we're going to live with each other when we don't agree about right. something as fundamental about what it is to be married. The best institution, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sad old Tory, the institution that I repose most hope that it finds a way of us living messily with each other rather than shouting one another down is the Church of England. Well, so not I'm, the Tory party then. Well, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're, we're obviously leading the way. Right. It but, was but a Conservative Prime Minister who introduced Crucially, what you're before. describing, uh, Father Andrew, is a debate within the Church. Indeed. Um, but now, do you think it would be at all appropriate for people to bring cases against the Church in order to now, Graham, I, 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 I think this is an important point. This is not an issue of being anti or pro gay marriage or whatever. Uh, this is a question of the proper relationship between state and church. Mm. And do you feel that this is a debate that must happen within churches, or do you see a case for social action or legal action outside of changes outside of churches to try to change their mind? And the Church of England, and um, indeed the bishop recognised it in their own statement around um, marriage, was has a long tradition of conscientious dissent. Mm. And that has um, shown itself both in the Church of England's um, response to divorce over many, many years, where some clergy would remarry divorcees in church and others would choose not to do so. Um, it's been particularly clear in the Church of England in the last 20 years in our divisions over the role of women within the ministry of the church, so that we now have women priests and soon to be, thank God, women bishops. And yet within the church, we welcome and provide an honored place for those who theologically are unable to accept that development. I would argue the Church of England, absolutely, as, as Graham says, is ideally placed to provide 
uh, a community in which we can disagree well mm -hmm. about this issue as well. And people like me, and there are many people like me within the church um, who have a more liberal and progressive understanding of what marriage is, um, who will welcome gay and lesbian people, who support marriage in this form, and who would be willing to provide liturgies of, of, of blessing. Right. Peter, um, how do you feel the relationship between state and church now stands as a result of this legislation? Well, in a, feel, in a sense, I feel like this isn't my discussion because I'm not an Anglican. However, um, I do think that there need to be appropriate protections given for people who do dissent from what is the sort of redefined understanding of marriage, that it's just about between uh, the love between people or, or mutual commitment. Um, and I see that in a number of places, not just in the church, uh, in the Anglican communion, but also in places like teaching or even in sort of uh, professions beyond that. So, for example, I have a friend who, in a Catholic school, uh, was asked in her class by a pupil, uh, what do you think about gay marriage? And she thought, well, it's a Catholic school. I can say, well, I think that this is wrong. I think that redefining marriage is wrong. And there was a girl who was apparently questioning her sexuality in the class who went and reported her to the deputy head, and she was uh, brought in and uh, complained about that because she was told it's against the law to say that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Now, And there was another friend of mine who just la yesterday, funny enough, contacted me. He actually works at Mossbros, uh, who are bringing out this campaign uh, for same-sex weddings, and he feels that he can't... Uh, morally engage in material cooperation with what they're doing because that goes against his conscience. All of these different things come up. We need to have protections for people or at least allow just basic religious uh, liberty for people to say, you know what, I don't agree with this. I might respect and love people who are same-sex attracted. I don't have anything against them. I believe as the Catholic Church teaches that all, all people should be treated with respect and sensitivity and tolerance. However, this goes fundamentally contrary to my conscience as to what marriage is and those people should be respected as well. And I think that includes people like uh, the Hazel Mary Bull, uh, Hazel Mary Bull and her husband and people like that who, who had a fundamental conscientious objection, not out of bigotry or prejudice, but out of fundamental reasonable and religious conviction. Theology, can we at least agree on the principle of freedom of conscience? Yes. We can to a point. So mm. my ardent hope is that we don't see a sequence of um, futile legalistic challenges mm. against people like the, the bulls. Mm. I've written often about how backward um, that was, uh, you know, for the best of reasons, the couples who brought the the suit against the innkeepers like the bulls. Mm. I understand why they did it, but it doesn't. It really doesn't help. But there's a, a, a the more of that legalistic activism is done, the less space we will have mm. to listen properly to one another. And it's only through listening. I don't know how we we'll get there, but we will find this messy way to live with each other to try and see the good but there's a difference between that in my mind at any rate and somebody such as I hate to pick on an individual but Lillian Liddell who was uh, uh, the registrar in yes, uh, in Islington who wouldn't conduct civil partnerships I, I can't don't know if I can describe it as an algorithm but I can see a difference between not wanting to have a guest in your house mm -hmm. because of your religious uh, conscience and choosing to do a job which but saying, I don't want to do it for those people. Right. And I know that you could prove me wrong deductively there, but there feels mm. to me a big difference. And the legal activism doesn't help. It conflates the two. She might have become a registrar before, of course, that came in. Of course. Yes. Yes. Um, she did. Do you think that once this has happened, once Saturday has passed, we might emerge a different kind of society which is concerned about different sorts of things? Uh, that putting aside issues of sex and sexuality might mean that, uh, for example, we have a conservative uh, party which is more focused on liberty, less focused on matters of, of culture and lifestyle. 
personally, I think the ones we've got through the weekend, the fact that people choose to get married, whoever they are, will become utterly unremarkable and people will continue to celebrate the relationships of their friends and family as they have always done. It just means that some of those people celebrating will be in same-sex relationships. Um, personally, I hope the church stops worrying about what goes on in the bedroom. And actually, this isn't even about what goes on in the bedroom, actually. It's just simply about the institution of marriage. Mm. And... Um, concentrates on the things that are truly important in the gospel, which is about the care of the poor, the orphan, and the stranger. And one of the things I like about Pope Francis is that he has done his very best in the last year to move the church away from an obsessive conversation about other people's sexual activities onto wanting a church of the poor for the poor. And I just hope the bishops of the Church of England can take that example and follow it in the Church of England as well. Peter, finally, is one of the reasons why Francis is so popular precisely because he is sort of in touch with that popular mood that wants to think less about sex and more about poverty? I think he's popular because of his manner. To be perfectly honest, I think that people viewed often Catholic popes as if they were this judgmental group of people who only ever talked about sex. Of course, the reality is that it's secular society that talks about sex less than the church. But fundamentally, the Catholic Church is not going to change in its fundamental teaching on this. Pope Francis is simply going to reframe the way that we go about discussing it. And I think that's very valuable. I think talking to people with respect and sensitivity, we were doing that before, but this is making it more pronounced now. But even then, keeping the teachings of Christ and the gospel on sexuality at the same time as talking about all the other things that are are in fact fundamental parts of, of Christianity is exactly what we need and that's exactly what Pope Francis is doing. So that's Can a very I good add thing. one caveat to that? Mm-hmm. Our Lord was entirely silent on sexuality. No, St. he wasn't. Paul. Matthew 19. <laughs> Matthew, Matthew 19, Matthew Mark 5, I came not to abolish the law. If we um, carry on, we're going to be very loud illiterate. about sexuality Theology. for a and very, very long time. Silence. Father mm-hmm. Andrew Kane, Graham Archer and Peter Williams, thank you all very much. ITV's real-life crime drama The Widower tells the story of Malcolm Webster, a fat and unappealing male nurse who financed his lavish lifestyle by killing his wives. Or at least he tried to. Malcolm only succeeded in killing his first wife and was caught out a second time and is now sitting penniless in jail. It's an odd story for it to be a popular TV hit. There's little tension because the audience knows what's going to happen, and the plot is pretty squalid and depressing. Not just because Webster is a killer, but because so many women actually found him attractive. Yet real-life crime, like fictional crime, continues to sell big. For some strange reason, we can't get enough of knowing what nasty things people do to each other. I'm joined by Alex Marwood, author of the crime novel The Wicked Girls, to explain what she thinks people find so attractive about this genre. Alex, why do people want to read about people like Peter Sutcliffe or Fred West? Well, of course, um, it, it, actually, if you think about it, reading about the baddies and, the, uh, and their retribution is sort of as old as the Bible, really, isn't right. it? Um, I think that um, it's, it's quite interesting that the, the way that... Um, Crime itself, crime drama, really became a big thing in the 19th century, fairly much post-Darwin. The, the, the Victorians pretty much invented murder as a, um, as, a, a, as an entertainment genre rather than as the Shakespearean moral dilemma genre. Right. And I think that to 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 a degree, I think as but uh, it is possible that as uh, the the influence of God has waned, that people are looking 
still looking for sort of some other uh, some other form of retribution. <laughs> but but, um, you, but you said there, there seems to be a tension there between mm. saying it's entertainment and saying it's retribution. I mean, absolutely. But you know, to an extent, all the stories in the Bible are entertainment as much as they're um, right. as they're moral fables. Right, right. right. But but I mean, uh, you said it was post Darwin. You said mm. the Victorians did it, and, and it was about moving away from the moral play. Does that? Does that mean that we we have some peculiar interest in the mechanics of the crime itself? We actually find the crime itself thrilling? Well, mm, um, yes, clearly yes. I mean, if you just look at the, the, the degree to which, you know, horror movies are one of the biggest um, biggest genres, that, yeah. um, uh, most, most uh, biggest money genres, it's absolutely clear that, yeah, people are looking for something that is going to make the hair, their hairs on the back of their neck stand on end. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with... Uh, with with true life crime, one of the things that people actually like is the fact that it's um, it, yes, it really happened, but it happened to somebody else. Right, and um, they can, to an extent, I think that this this shows particularly with the widow. Or actually, I'll get onto that in a second. Um, it, it allows them to feel that they are actually less likely to become. Um, victims of these crimes than um, if they're just nebulously knowing that there are murderers out there. Um, I think that people are as interested in the victims as they are in the um, in the actual murderer. So what it's it's sort of perversely comforting to know. Yes, that these in a funny sort happen. of way. I mean, I think a lot of people who are watching The Widower are probably sitting there going, "Well, I'd never be so stupid as to be taken <laughs> in by him." <laughs> and why were the women taken in? That's the uh, well. Thing. Psychopaths and charm, it's an absolute right. absolute classic classic right. thing. Psychopaths and narcissists both um um have uh, great quantities of charm and can adapt themselves to whatever it is their audience wants them to be. They can't keep it up, but um it's a it's a very classic um uh, sign of uh, both psychopath, psychopathy, psychopathy, right, <laughs> and right. narcissistic personality disorder. So psychopaths make will, great lovers. Well, they make great lovers in the first instance. In the first couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, but I found something slightly disturbing about the widower that I found myself uh, focusing on his character and not that of the victims. Well, I think most of it was is is. Um, that that is because the show is focused on right. his character and not right. that of the victims. I mean, to an extent. But, but, it, but it means mm. you you see it from his perspective, and I'm not saying I felt sympathy, but they did go on at him a lot about money, and I did. Start- <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I don't really blame them for going on about him. Oh, but he spent a lot of money. He was but... a, yeah, he was a raving fantasist who right. was um, was 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 destroying, um, uh, potentially destroying their entire way of life. Both both sets of marriages were greatly under threat of bankruptcy as a result of his fantasy life. But is there a risk if you put the killer at the centre of the narrative that the reader or the viewer starts to see things from their point of view? Well, I think people are interested in 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 trying to get some picture of why it is that um, that some people do become this twisted and and, and this lost. I think actually that um, uh, Rhys Shearsmith is playing the part absolutely brilliantly because yeah. the the sort of functional disconnect between um, himself and his actual actions is some. Um, it, it comes across brilliantly. The sort of blank effect that um, that, that that he produces when he's 
actually carrying out his murders and i think the the um the the the, the conversations he has with the um poor drugged wives when they um when are unable asleep, to yeah. is uh, is uh, played absolutely beautifully yeah um i think actually in a lot of ways it's 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 one of the best um uh portrayals of psychopoc- psychopathy that i've um, seen do you think when it comes to crime fiction a motive is more important to the readers or the viewers than working out who done it or the mechanics of the plot itself is is it really because we tend to think of when it comes to something like Agatha Christie that what's important is figuring out who done it and it's a puzzle that you can work out but actually, is really the psychology of the characters more important? Is that what really leaves an oh, impression it depends. on them? You know, there's there's such a, a huge variety of, um, of of different things within the crime genre. It's one of the reasons that I love it. So, but um, I mean, I think I think in terms of in terms of real life crime, of course, it would be very interesting um, to see how people responded to um, a show that was based on a murderer who didn't get caught. Right. Um, there isn't uh, really... There, I, I, can't, I can't think off the top of my head of a, of a true life thing oh, the, 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 that involves a, a part, obviously, from um, um, Jack the Ripper, but, of course, Jack the Ripper is sort of long enough ago that everybody can feel comfortable and safe with him. Yeah, and, and in um, fact have romanticised him to absolutely. some degree. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, they, they keep trying to sort of turn him into a, a Hannibal Lecter yeah. sort of individual, whereas actually the likelihood is that he was just a totally screwed up um, person with some form of brain and, damage. And that's you know. an interesting point that always fascinates me about crime and murder stories mm. is, is the desire for some authors to present a, a murderer who is sophisticated, charming, intelligent like Dr. Lecter. I mean, mm. I would very happily be killed by Hannibal Lecter. I mean, I, <laughs> Because you're gonna. I'm not sure. Well, really I, it's gonna be painful, but you're gonna go out and starve. He's gonna feed you... you well beforehand, and you know that you're gonna die with some beautiful <laughs> opera playing in the background. Um, but most killers are not like that in real life. They're actually knuckle drugging, dragging lunatics. Absolutely. Just... I mean, um, in in my own books, I think the 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 thing one of the the my main driving um uh my main drives is actually to try to get across the banality of evil. Right. Um, and um, the fact that um, the, the, the people often actually do this stuff without any planning, without any real um, conscious intention. Right. Um, it is, for instance, terribly easy to actually kill somebody by strangulation because if you hit um, the vagus nerve... Uh-huh. They can die within about a second right. of you doing it. Right. Um, so, in fact, a lot of a lot of strangulation murderers are rather surprised people, and they're blokes who wanted to um, give their give their woman a scare, um, and um, and 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 find find that within one second of them getting their hands around their necks that she's dead. Right. You see, I find it um, eerie just hearing you describe exactly that. Um, if, can you give us some sense of what it's like to kill someone in a novel? As a, as a writer, <laughs> well, of course, the trouble is, as a writer, you're actually taking hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to um, reproduce something that happens in a minute. So it's um, it's 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 very 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 different from actually killing somebody. I I keep at the moment my latest book, The Killer Next Door, has quite a lot of um, um, 
detailed examination of how to mummify a corpse. Right. And um, <laughs> I keep getting uh, tweets and Facebooks things about how I've put people off their dinner and, um, <laughs> and, 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 and people asking me if I lost weight while I was writing it, but actually, of course, not, because it took me... 12 hours to write each uh, each chapter, uh, evisceration chapter. And, of course, I was eating a lot of biscuits while I was doing it because that's what we do. <laughs> and do you put yourself in the mind of the killer, the person trying to catch the killer or the victim? Who It depends on, you know, which I always have multiple points of view um, right. in my books. So that's, you know, but what I do find is that um, my... Uh, dream life becomes very, very disturbed while I'm doing really? that sort of stuff. Yeah. Fortunately, I've always rather enjoyed my nightmares. I think that's probably um, probably one of the driving forces behind why I write, I do what I do for a living. Um, but yeah, I get I get very, very dark and quite violent um, dreams while I'm in the writing process. Final question. Oh. Is there anything you've written which readers have felt has gone too far? Oh, God, yeah. Killing the dogs. Killing dogs, right. Killing dogs, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There were, um, uh, hang on a sec, eight murders in the Wicked Girls, but the only thing that people really, really objected to was the killing the dogs. Alex Marwood, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. For more opinion and commentary, you can find us at telegraph.co.uk.